Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Welcome to the final days of our Inside the Board Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. We've got Greg Rodden, host of the Physiology by Physio podcast, doing some GI questions for us today. Go download the Inside the Boards iOS beta app and subscribe to our all-audio QBank. These are audio-optimized questions to help you learn on the go with the Step 1 version powered by Exam Circle and the Step 2 version for you who are finishing Step 1 or have finished. um, The Step 2 version is powered by Online MedEd. We're working on a cross-platform app, but in the meantime, For our Android friends, you can subscribe to the pilot version of the Audio QBank on Podbean at insidetheboards.podbean.com. We're adding an additional 100 questions over the next couple days to help you uh, at the end of your dedicated study period. The setup is not as cool as our iOS beta app. The content is in long-form tracks, kind of like podcasts of 10 to 15 minutes. But it's our solution for now for our Android friends. Of course, for the iOS beta, you can search the App Store for Inside the Boards or just click the link in the show notes. Hey guys, it's Greg from Inside the Boards, and I am just here to do another installment of our 2019 Study Smarter series. This episode is going to be focused on a bunch of GI questions, so let's jump right into it. A 25-year-old man is brought by ambulance to the emergency department following a high-speed motor vehicle accident. He is conscious and denies any head trauma, but he complains of progressively worsening abdominal pain. Vital signs are significant for heart rate of 130. Initial fast ultrasound scan was unrevealing, but an abdominal CT shows evidence of retroperitoneal bleeding. Which of the following structures is the most likely source? Is it A, the jejunum? B, the pancreas, C, the spleen, or D, the transverse colon? And the correct answer is B, the pancreas. So among those who come in with major abdominal trauma, uh, like from a motor vehicle accident, uh, pancreatic trauma happens in about 4% of these patients. Hemorrhagic pancreatitis uh, secondary to trauma may lead to retroperitoneal bleeding based on its anatomical location. So this question was ultimately asking you whether or not you recognize the retroperitoneal organs, one of which is the pancreas. Unfortunately, knowing about the retroperitoneal organs is just a matter of memorization, but there is a helpful mnemonic for it. It's sad pucker. So let's go through that mnemonic together. S for suprarenal glands, A for aorta and also the inferior vena cava, D for the duodenum, P for the pancreas, U for the ureters, C for the colon, K for the kidney, E for the esophagus, and R for the rectum. So again, that's sad pucker. And for you anatomy buffs out there, some of these organs have both intraperitoneal and retroperitoneal components. For example, with the pancreas, the tail of the pancreas is actually intraperitoneal, while the rest of the pancreas is retroperitoneal. Also, for the duodenum, only the middle of it, i.e. the second and third segments of the duodenum, 
are retroperitoneal, while the rest of it is intraperitoneal, the first and fourth segments. And the last example I'll cover here is the large intestine. So for the large intestine, only the ascending and descending segments are retroperitoneal, while the rest of it, so the transverse segment, is intraperitoneal. Okay, cool. So the pancreas can be a source of retroperitoneal bleeding. Probably the best distractor in this question was the spleen, which can produce heavy bleeding when damaged in trauma, but bleeding from the spleen is going to cause intraperitoneal bleeding, not retroperitoneal bleeds. Okay, very good. So I hope that helped. Uh, We'll do our next question now. A 66-year-old man complains of a painful mass palpated in his right groin, which spontaneously appeared after hauling a deer into his truck while hunting. He states that the pain is exacerbated by standing up, by coughing, and also by defecating. On physical exam, a reducible hernia is palpable. Which of the following is the most likely location of this patient's hernia? Is it A, inferior to the inguinal ligament, B, lateral to the femoral vessels, C, medial to the inferior epigastric vessels, or D, lateral to the inferior epigastric vessels? And the correct answer here is C. So this was another anatomy question. Um, This one was basically asking, where are you going to find a direct inguinal hernia? And the correct answer to that is medial to the inferior epigastric vessels. Uh, Specifically, this is going to be within Hesselbach's triangle. So do you remember the structures that form Hesselbach's triangle? Well, they are the inferior epigastric vessels, the inguinal ligament, and the lateral border of the rectus abdominis muscle. So within Hesselbach's triangle, you'll find direct inguinal hernias. This is in contrast to indirect inguinal hernias, which are found lateral to the inferior epigastric vessels. Now, why would you think that this one is a direct inguinal hernia versus an indirect inguinal hernia? Well, think about the story here. We have a relatively old guy. He's 66 years old, and he performed a maneuver with the deer, basically having to lift a heavy load, um, and that's going to produce a lot of intra-abdominal pressure. And then that high intra-abdominal pressure can basically produce a tear in the transversalis fascia, which also weakens with aging. So for this reason, a direct inguinal hernia is most likely for this story. Um, and you'll find a direct inguinal hernia medial to the inferior epigastric vessels within that Hesselbach's triangle. All right, and we're really cooking here. Next question. A 44-year-old female presents to the emergency department with a complaint of persistent right upper quadrant pain. She also complains of anorexia and nausea, but no emesis. She states that she has had similar episodes in the past, but never as severe. Past medical history is also significant for obesity. Physical exam is significant for positive Murphy sign. Serum studies show elevated transaminases and bilirubin, both direct and total. Serum lipase is also elevated. Imaging is most likely to reveal a stone in which of the following locations? Is it A, the common bile duct, B, the common hepatic duct, C, the cystic duct, or D, the main pancreatic duct? And the correct answer is A, the common bile duct. So this woman's story is pretty classic for gallstone pancreatitis. She's obese and she's in her 40s, which gives us three of the four Fs for gallstones. Also, she has a positive Murphy sign, which further suggests the presence of a gallstone. Okay, now we need to figure out where the stone is most likely to be. And we can actually do this using her lab studies. 
So she has elevations of both serum bilirubin and transaminases, which tells us that the liver is being affected by the cholestasis. But this also means that we can eliminate answer choice C, the cystic duct, because blockage of the cystic duct would only block up the gallbladder. It wouldn't affect the liver. Okay, and next, she also has elevations of serum lipase, which tells us that the pancreas is affected by the obstructing gallstone as well. So, among the answer choices, the only one that would mess with both the liver and the pancreas is the common bile duct, specifically the distal portion of the common bile duct close to the sphincter of Odi. If it was blocking the common hepatic duct, that would only cause elevations of liver enzymes, and it wouldn't cause elevations of pancreatic enzymes. If it was blocking the main pancreatic duct, it would only cause elevations of the serum lipase. But because we have elevations of all of those, it's the common bile duct that is being blocked here. Hence, answer choice A is correct, the common bile duct. Okay, so are you ready for the next question here? A 51-year-old male presents to the emergency department with severe chest pain. Upon questioning, he states that he underwent EGD or esophagastroduodenoscopy the previous day due to his history of peptic ulcer disease. His vital signs are significant for hypotension and tachycardia, but his oxygen saturation is 100% on room air. Chest radiograph shows air within the mediastinum. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A. Borhov syndrome? B. Mallory Weiss tear? C. Perforated peptic ulcer? Or D. Pulmonary embolism? And the correct answer is A. Borhov syndrome. So this patient is presenting with a perforated esophagus, also known as Borhov syndrome, and this was likely secondary to his recent endoscopy. The chest x-ray that they gave us here was really helpful to clue us into the underlying diagnosis, because it showed air within the mediastinum. Because it's air within the mediastinum, we can be confident that the only answer choice that makes sense here is Borhov syndrome, or a perforating hole within the esophagus. For example, with the perforated peptic ulcer, we would see gas underneath of the diaphragm, but not within the mediastinum. Other findings associated with Borhoff syndrome include hematemesis, uh, subcutaneous emphysema, which causes kind of a crackling sensation when you palpate the chest wall. It's pretty crazy to see. Um, and you can also see hemodynamic instability, which this patient is headed towards given his hypotension and tachycardia. So in addition to a patient who recently underwent an EGD, you also want to look out for Borhoff syndrome um, in an alcoholic or a pregnant woman, where they were basically retching for a prolonged period of time, and that produces really high pressures in the esophagus and can ultimately blow a hole in the esophagus. So anyways, these were all classic scenarios for Borhoff syndrome. Okay, and next question. A father brings his five-week-old boy to the emergency department for a 24-hour history of projectile vomiting following each feed. The vomitus is non-bloody and non-bilious. The patient has not been febrile and has no known sick contacts. On physical exam, he is lethargic and has poor skin turgor. Which of the following is the next best step in the treatment of this patient? Is it A, abdominal ultrasound, B, broad-spectrum antibiotics, C, IV fluids, or D, pyloromyotomy? And the correct answer is C, IV fluids. 
So on the board exams, if you see an infant who is four to eight weeks old with projectile vomiting after every single feed, and it's non-bloody, non-bilious, you immediately need to be thinking of congenital pyloric stenosis or hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. So this is a condition where the pylorus or the outlet from the stomach into the duodenum is stenosed or it's skinny. And this ends up causing overload of the stomach and the baby will just vomit it back out. And they can vomit it pretty far, um, hence the projectile vomiting after feeds. Additionally, because of the pyloric stenosis and the vomitus is only in the stomach, it's going to be non-bilious. And in this case, it'll also be non-bloody too. Okay, so when taking care of this patient, remember that the question was, what's the next best step? Not what's the definitive treatment or anything like that. So the next best step in treating a super dehydrated little baby is going to be IV fluids. We need to prevent them from going into shock, so we need to replenish their intravascular volume. Okay, so once we give them the IV fluids, then we can start to worry about the workup and the definitive treatment. So when working up congenital pyloric stenosis, the best imaging test is going to be the abdominal ultrasound, and that was answer choice A. And then the definitive treatment is going to be pyloromyotomy, where you basically make a cut into the pylorus to help open it up. But again, before we even think about doing surgery, we need to correct the patient's volume and electrolyte imbalance caused by the relentless vomiting. So the keys to this question, again, were what was the next best step, not what's the definitive treatment. And for a little baby who's lethargic and has poor skin turgor and clearly is volume down, we need to give them IV fluids first. Then we can worry about the definitive treatment and workup. Okay, and let's move on to our next question here. A 45-year-old woman is brought to the emergency department by her husband after two days of high fevers, chills, and upper abdominal pain. She endorses nausea but no vomiting and states that she has not eaten in 24 hours due to her symptoms. She's been taking acetaminophen four times daily to control the fevers and to help with the pain. Past medical history is significant for untreated gallstones. Vital signs reveal that she is febrile to 102.5 and she's tachycardic. She appears acutely ill. Murphy's sign and rebound tenderness are absent, but palpation of the abdomen elicits guarding, particularly in the upper quadrants. Abdominal ultrasound demonstrates common bile duct dilatation. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, a calculus cholecystitis, B, acetaminophen toxicity, C, ascending cholangitis, or D, biliary colic? And the correct answer is C, ascending cholangitis. So this patient's acute presentation in the context of common bile duct dilation is suspicious for ascending cholangitis, which is infection and inflammation of the biliary tree ascending from the GI tract. Ascending cholangitis is most commonly seen in the context of a biliary obstruction, like from a gallstone or a pancreatic tumor. Remember that she had a history of untreated gallstones. And then, now that we have that biliary obstruction, bacteria will like to grow behind the static fluid there. So gram-negative enteric bacteria, like E. coli, will like to climb up there and infect the biliary tree. Although it may be difficult to distinguish cholangitis from cholecystitis, cholangitis generally presents with a more severe illness, right, with high fever, right upper quadrant pain, and maybe some jaundice. Do you remember what this is called? Well, this is called Charcot triad. And if you add hypotension and altered mental status into the mix too, then it's called Reynolds pentad. 
So ascending cholangitis is a serious condition with very high mortality when it's left untreated, so these patients need to be admitted to the ICU to be taken care of. For their initial imaging, you can get an ultrasound or a CT. Uh, this question stem mentioned that she got an ultrasound, and it also showed that she had dilatation of the common bile duct, which suggests a distal obstruction and ascending cholangitis. But beyond diagnostic ultrasound or CT, the actual gold standard is going to be the ERCP, or endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography. So this is where you're basically taking an endoscope down into the duodenum, and then you kind of back up through the sphincter of OD to get into the biliary tree. It's pretty cool. Uh, also, what's cool about ERCP is that it's both diagnostic and therapeutic because it's going to identify the problem with the endoscope, and then if it's a stone, it can also fix the problem by extracting the stone and allowing the common bile duct to drain again. Remember that the underlying problem here is biliary obstruction, right? So we want to relieve the obstruction and allow the common bile duct to drain. Okay, so in addition to relieving the source of the biliary obstruction, these patients are also going to need supportive care with IV fluids and IV antibiotics to suppress the infection. Ascending cholangitis can easily turn into fluorid septicemia. So you'll usually want to give them something that can cover common gram-negative and anaerobic GI bugs, uh, something like cefazolin or piptazo or ciprofloxacin. Uh, some docs will also add metronidazole into the mix too. Okay, very good. And here's the last GI question I wanted to cover with you guys. A 20-year-old female with history significant for asthma and food allergies presents to her primary care physician complaining of food intermittently sticking in her throat. This only occurs with solid foods and is accompanied by chest pain and occasionally vomiting. She denies constitutional symptoms, including weight loss, fevers, and fatigue. She also denies reflux as well as tobacco or alcohol use. Physical exam is normal. Which of the following findings is most likely to be present upon endoscopy of this patient? Is it A, esophageal webs, B, intestinal metaplasia, C, linear furrows, or D, punched out ulcers? And the correct answer is C, linear furrows. So this patient is presenting with signs and symptoms of eosinophilic esophagitis. This IgE-mediated esophagitis stems from food allergies causing eosinophilic infiltration into the distal esophagus, and this results in inflammatory swelling, smooth muscle dysfunction, and eventual scarring. So as we saw in her case, this can produce dysphagia and globus sensation and food impaction. It even caused her chest pain and occasional vomiting. Eosinophilic esophagitis is a disease more commonly seen in patients with atopic disorders like asthma and allergies and eczema. Remember that she had both asthma and allergies. Hence, that should have cued you to be thinking about diseases associated with this atopic syndrome. So on endoscopy, patients with eosinophilic esophagitis classically have regions of inflamed linear furrows, and occasionally you can see esophageal rings too. For the other answer choices, intestinal metaplasia refers to Barrett's esophagus, which will be seen in long-standing GERD. Her story really didn't have any long-standing reflux, so we should lean away from this one. Also, answer choice D, punched-out ulcers refers to lesions that you can see with HSV esophagitis. There's no indication that she's immunocompromised, so HSV esophagitis is unlikely here. So the bottom line for this one, on the boards, if you see an otherwise healthy patient with an atopic history, like asthma, allergies, eczema, 
who now has esophageal symptoms, you should be thinking about eosinophilic esophagitis. And on endoscopy of eosinophilic esophagitis, you can see linear furrows. All right, so I hope my explanations were helpful. I hope you guys learned something. Thanks for participating with me on this one, and I'll see you guys next time. All right, thanks, Greg. Remember, go subscribe to Physiology by Physio, and go check out our main channel. This week, our audio blog, powered by Med School Tutors, covers what to do in your final two weeks of USMLE Step 1 preparation, as well as, now that's high yield, biochemistry, from the Med School Tutors blog.